Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar, broadcasting from my home studio. A plow to break up the soil and eventually plant seeds was an essential tool for farmers at one time. The thought was a plow was needed to plant enough seeds to grow a viable crop. Crops may have grown, but once a plow was used to till the land, the results weren't always beneficial over a long period of time for the soil's health and eventually the surrounding environment. But now there are a growing number of farmers that are growing their crops by not plowing, but utilizing no-till practices instead. To tell us more about this today is Jim Hershey, president of the Pennsylvania No-Till Alliance and a farmer in Lancaster County, Lisa Blazier, soil health coordinator with the Stroud Water Research Center, and Steve Groff, a farmer in Lancaster County who is a cover crop hemp educator. Welcome to the program, all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Jim Hershey, some of the basics. What is no-till farming? Well, uh, first of all, Scott, thank you for, for inviting us uh, this morning uh, to to hopefully uh, educate uh, those listeners more about no-till. But uh, no-till is uh, is is a is a practice that is means that you will not be doing any plowing, you won't be doing any disking, you won't be disturbing any of the soil, and so we we practiced that uh, here in our farm for uh, the past 30, 30 years, and uh, we're no-till all of our crops, corn, soybeans, and wheat. Uh, and I also would like to include cover crops. Cover crops is a very important part of this uh, whole soil health uh, practice. Your farm is outside of Elizabethtown, right? That's correct. Okay. Uh, so explain how it works. If you don't use a plow and you haven't for 30 years, how does it work? How do you get the seeds in the ground? Well, there there is uh, planters that are equipped with uh, special attachments that are are used in order to put the seed in the ground. For corn, we plant about two inches, put the seed about two inches in the ground. So you want to have a, a good, uh, well-equipped uh, planter in order to be able to uh, incorporate that seed into the soil without disking or plowing. I just okay disc. I want to uh, identify some of these uh, terms for uh, the non-farmers out there. What is a disc? Sure. I mean, I know what a disc is, but when it comes to farming and uh, putting a seed in the ground, it is a it is a machine that has um, uh, blades spaced probably about 10 or 12 inches apart and it it basically what it's supposed to do is pulverize the soil um, in a way that um, makes it much more uh, easy to plant into what it tends to do is level off the ground it actually um, 
tends to seed or to to seal off the ground. Uh, oftentimes, they will pull a roller behind it in order to break up the clods. Uh, but that is is certainly not a practice that that I would um, suggest right now. <laughs> so, just to be clear, how do the seeds get into the ground if you're not plowing it? This equipment that you're talking about. Well, they're they're put into the. Oftentimes, in the situation that we are practicing here on our farm, is that we will be planting into a cover crop. A cover crop is is any kind of uh, grain crop or. Le- legume, anything green growing out there sometimes can be considered a cover crop. But the, the, there is basically two seed discs um, that, that open up the soil to drop the seed into that slot. And then there's a um, several closing wheels that will close that that slot back up and uh, oftentimes put a little bit of uh, fertilizer with it and and the environment is 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 unique now so the soil is being disturbed just not as much yes yes maybe i i would say maybe at at the most maybe two inches where you're you're opening up the soil and closing it back up Steve Groff, your farm is in southern Lancaster County, correct? Mm-hmm. Near where? So I'm down near uh, Holtwood, uh, west of Coryville, uh, but I'm near the Susquehanna River in what oh. we like to call the River Hills. <laughs> okay. So you are a cover crop and hemp educator, but uh, Jim mentioned cover crops. Tell us a little bit more about cover crops and why they are important when it comes to uh, no-till farming. So the cover crop name comes from covering the soil, and traditionally we've done this over the winter where when the soil is more uh, subject to erosion when we have, uh, you know, late fall rains or early spring rains, and uh, we want to keep the soil protected so it doesn't erode and go into our rivers and streams and into the Chesapeake Bay that we all know about. Uh, So we're literally covering the soil with a plant. There's all different kinds of plants that can be identified in the soil in the cover crop uh, description. And we use, some of them actually can be uh, used as cash crops. But when we use the term cover crop, we're uh, having the soil being covered by a living plant that's out of the sequence of our cash crop. So, you know, and you kind of, you you touched on this. Uh, How is this, but uh, when you're talking about uh, growing over the winter, and uh, I think Jim mentioned uh, different kind of cover crops, what are the cover crops that are uh, grown most often? The the most popular one is cereal rye. And the reason is because it's very uh, adaptable to uh, planting dates early in the in the fall or even late in the fall, as late as Thanksgiving, you can put it out. Uh, and uh, that's really good also at soaking up any leftover nitrates or the nitrogen that is in our soil. And again, as you know, nitrates are good for growing plants in the soil, but they're not good when they're in our waterways. So in addition to covering the soil, a cover crop like cereal rye captures and holds those nutrients so they don't leach into our groundwater or wash off our fields 
uh, during rainfall events, and then it re- it'll release them once they're terminated in the spring and give those nutrients back to our cash crop. So it's kind of like catch and release. Uh, the other is uh, a whole another section of cover crops called legumes. Legumes are cover crops or plants that will actually uh, take nitrogen out of the air. There's nitrogen in the air that we are breathing. And uh, it will, these plants are designed to take it out of the air and then they deposit it into the soil. And uh, some of the most common ones are hairy vets and crimson clover. Over the summer, we'll use sun hemp or cowpeas. What that does for us as farmers is that saves us from having to purchase uh, other, uh, uh, like, nitrogen input. So it saves us money uh, to do that. But all this needs to be highly managed. And uh, I liken it to farmers who are getting into this. It's like going from being a nurse to a surgeon. Same, same field of work, but it's more highly technical. And that's what I try to do with my cover crop coaching is help farmers uh, uh, to, to understand how to do these methods and, and farm in an environmentally responsible way and also doing that while being uh, economically sustainable. I'm curious, cereal rye, what products, uh, that's not something that people would put on their salad. <laughs> what uh, What is cereal rye? What products does that go so, into? Yeah, historically, uh, cereal rye is one of the tallest grains um, that we have here. So it's used for the straw, which is the part that's not the grain part. Uh, but also, you might you know be familiar with rye grain bread. Yeah. There are some varieties that are designed for to make bread of course that's not very popular but um there's other you know people make certain uh uh you know uh, alcoholic beverages out of rye uh but all in all rye cereal rye is kind of taking its place to be it is the most popular cover crop that is used that's definitely the primary use of cereal rye in in a nationwide basis Lisa Blazier with uh, the Stroud Water Research Center. Uh, Steve did a nice job of explaining uh, some of the environmental uh, benefits of uh, now no-till farming. But could you uh, talk specifically about the water, but that, that, that doesn't mean you can't talk about the other environmental benefits of it? Um, sure. I'll, I'll give a little bit of background about Stroud Water Research Center, too. But we're a science-based organization. Um, we've been established about 53 years ago to essentially gain a better understanding on, on what it takes to have these healthy stream systems. Um, and we really see working with farmers as a, a huge opportunity um, for change because as has already been mentioned, the benefits of no-till and cover crops and reducing the soil and the nutrient pollution. But farmers collectively in Pennsylvania make management decisions on about 7 million acres of land. So as we can encourage farmers to adopt these practices, um, which are often called regenerative farming practices to improve the soils, it really changes the way that that water flows across their farm systems, you know, and and by improving the soils, those soils can act as a sponge, you know, and when the rainwater um, falls on those fields, it 
soaks it up like a sponge, and then we've got less runoff, um, less chances for flooding, and as Steve mentioned, um, less soil and potential nutrients washing off the farms. So, you know, we really see this landscape scale opportunity um, with improving our soils um, and regenerative agriculture practices to improving healthy systems, stream systems. So is erosion, is soil erosion the big issue? I mean, uh, obviously, there's a lot that goes along with that when you're talking about the nutrients and you're, you're, you talk about the nitrogen, I should say, washing off and going into the waterways, eventually into the Chesapeake Bay. Is erosion the big issue? Um, I consider erosion a, a big issue, yeah, because if at the very basis, soils are the foundation of our farm, you know, and of our food systems. So that precious kind of layer of topsoil in some places is only could be less than six inches deep. So any practices that that we can implement on these farms to protect that soil and um, keep it from running off not only benefits the farmers, but by not having that soil washing into the streams, um, it doesn't fill those nooks and crannies where all those um, insects in the streams live and the fish in the streams, um, and it doesn't create those flooding and debris issues that we're seeing um, after these major rain events. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk more about uh, no-till farming in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're discussing no-till farming. Our guest today, Jim Hershey, president of the Pennsylvania No-Till Alliance, and he's a farmer uh, outside of Elizabethtown in Lancaster County. Lisa Blazier, soil health coordinator with the Stroud Water Research Center, and Steve Groff, a farmer in Lancaster County, who is a cover crop hemp educator. If you have a question or a comment, I know our audience is always very interested in environmental issues, issues having to do with the land and the water. Give us a call, one 800 729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page on Twitter. We are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, the phone number 1-800-729-7532. So, Jim Hershey, how widespread is no-till farming today? No-till farming today is expanding rapidly. Uh, if I needed to or suggested a percentage of no-till farming in Pennsylvania. Uh, It would be up in the 70% uh, range considered a continuous no-till system. So just so I'm clear, you're saying 70% of farmers today are using no-till practices? Yes. Yep. Wow. That, I mean, yeah. and this is relatively new. You said you've been doing it for 30 years, but I still consider that relatively new when you consider the centuries of farming. Um, so th- that's good news here in Pennsylvania, right? It certainly is. And I think a lot of what uh, what has been encouraging the use of, of uh, no-till and, and cover crop practices is that um, you know, farmers are seeing the need for keeping nutrients on their on their soils. You know, in addition to keeping that precious topsoil, like like Lisa had talked about, on our farms, 
we need to also retain our nutrients and and unfortunately some of that has been been um governed by by some of our agencies that have been encouraging you know to for us to to do a better job at that and to clean up our streams uh, protect our rivers and the chesapeake bay now, Lisa, let's talk a little bit more about that, because we know for the past uh, 25, 30 years that uh, the cleanup of the Chesapeake Bay has been uh, one of the most um, important issues, uh, environmental issues here in uh, central Pennsylvania, since the Susquehanna River is the greatest source of fresh water running into the Chesapeake Bay. Um, we know that uh, from recent reports that Pennsylvania is still behind in uh, meeting its uh, its goals in the Chesapeake Bay cleanup. We've heard that one of the reasons is because of agriculture pro- uh, 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 practices, I should say. So if 70% of farmers are utilizing no-till practices, what's the issue? Why are we still behind? Um. Because it's it's a complicated um, process with there's been a lot of legacy of um, nutrient and fertilizer inputs into our Pennsylvania soils, and in some places in Pennsylvania that um, that nitrogen and those nutrients are still within that groundwater system and can be for years. So we've got this legacy um, nutrient source in in some places that is coming through the groundwater system and still feeding nitrogen and phosphorus into our streams. Um, And we definitely still have places that um, are more vulnerable to soil erosion. So perhaps it's those particular places in the landscape and those farms that may not be practicing. And it's... Um, not only just the way that the land is managed, but it's also the the choices that farms are making with um, their animal management as well, you know, and um, how conscientious they are about spreading manure and not over-fertilizing the fields and making sure the barnyards where the animals are housed are that water is not flowing off and potentially reaching the stream. So there are multiple sources of nutrients that could enter these systems um, beyond just what's coming from the the crop fields and that no-till farming. Um, And I'll just throw out the statistic, too. We were talking about Pennsylvania, but Pennsylvania ranks sixth in the nation for adoption of no-till practices, and we are actually third in the nation for um, the percentage of cover crop acres planted. Um, And I think that's something that we should be proud of. You know, Pennsylvania farmers are are really leading the the nation in these efforts. Um, And within the Chesapeake Bay, the top five states for implementing these cover crop practices on a percentage basis are all within the Chesapeake Bay watershed. But but Lisa, if we're really... But Lisa, I hate to interrupt. I'm sorry. Uh, But if we're still behind not meeting our goals, uh, you've suggested some of the reasons that, uh, you know, that there are other other farms that are not doing these things. What has to happen? What has to happen that Pennsylvania can meet these goals? 
Well, there, Pennsylvania has recently submitted a plan to um, EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, as to how they're going to try to meet those goals. Um, and honestly, there's there's a big funding gap right now. There's there's a big need in Pennsylvania for um, manure storages on farms, for um, updated barnyard projects, um, and. There are funding sources and grants out there, potentially, but there's a big gap right now with the amount of money that that is able to be invested into these farms. Um, So it takes a couple things. It takes that funding commitment, um, but it also takes um, the motivation of the farmers to be willing to, to make those changes and What's exciting about soil health and regenerative agriculture is it's a relatively low-cost way to still meet these nutrient reductions and sediment reductions. Um, you know, the cost of new planting equipment could, could be the biggest investment that a farm would have, but it's still a much cheaper and more economical way to meet our water quality goals than um, putting concrete structures of barnyards and, and storages on our farms. Um, so it's a combination of funding and just a shift in, in attitudes that, that we need in the agricultural system. Steve Groff, you uh, you touched on a few things that Lisa just mentioned. Uh, you mm-hmm. said in particular that you save money by uh, utilizing no-till. Uh, Lisa talked about a couple of them, but overall, how do you save money? Well, first of all, uh, just the fuel savings alone of making less trips over the field with our tractors um, and, and the cost of running equipment, the cost of running tillage equipment. I mean, all that together, you know, can can be, you know, 20 to $50 an acre. doesn't sound like a lot, but it adds up when you have 100 acres or a couple hundred acres, as many farmers do. Um, and then the other thing that we really haven't talked much about yet is uh, you know, there's different variations of no-till, or there's different variations of the intensity of cover cropping uses. Uh, what, what I, what, where I try to direct farmers is you really got to get serious about it and learn, learn how to manage the concept. The profit is in the management of the concept. So once you, uh, understand the concept, and actually what we're doing here is we're trying to farm like nature. We're trying to mimic nature. Whenever, when you look at a woods, you know, it's never tilled, and there's diversity there, many plant species, and there's plant life in the roots, I should say, year-round. So when we, when we mimic the fundamental, fundamental, um, the fundamental uh, concepts of nature, we can then reduce our cost. Also, we don't need as much fertilizer, added input, uh, because we're saving it. It's not washing away or leaching away. I mentioned legume cover crops. Instead of purchasing nitrogen, we're allowing our plants to do that. Uh, so there's a savings right there. Uh, and once you get into this system, and, and uh, trust me, it takes years. You asked about, you know, what are some of the barriers? Why aren't we making more ground? It takes years. It's taken us centuries to get to this point. It's going to take us decades to get out of it. Um, so uh, once you do that, you can have lower inputs. Um, and uh, savings of time, savings of fuel, all those things add up then 
to a more uh, more a more profitable farm. And um, I just wrote a book about that. It's coming out this summer called The Future Proof Farm. And maybe we can come back some other day and discuss that. But there's another element in here that's beginning to emerge in this whole um, discussion of regenerative agriculture, where major corporations, uh, and actually it's driven by the general public, they want to know how their food was grown. I mean, we've had for decades the organic movement, which is great. Um, the regenerative agriculture movement is kind of a hybrid between we'll just call conventional and maybe organic. Um, and there's, there's, you know, pros and cons to every, every cropping system. Uh, but, but here we go where the consumers are wanting to know how their food was grown. Was it grown in an environmentally friendly way? So corporations now, like General Mills, have pumped up to $6 million in the soil health research. So that is starting to get farmers' attention. What do I need to know to be able to grow food that the consumer wants? So these are some of the many things here that uh, I see opportunity for farmers in uh, not only saving money but making money when we adopt some of these systems we're talking about today. Uh, Jim Hershey. Uh, this sounds great. And uh, people hearing this for the first time say, you know, why I'm, I'm surprised more people aren't doing it, although Steve just mentioned that it does take a long time. Uh, but there are those who are critical of no farm, uh, no uh, till farming, because there are many farmers who use herbicides. In fact, we've received several emails from listeners who say that uh, if you're going to use herbicides uh, to kill weeds, that, uh, you know, the environmental benefits that you're talking about uh, won't be as pronounced. I understand there's more than one way of, uh, of, of using no-till farming, but how often are herbicides used? Well, it, it, the use of herbicides is usually uh, governed or determined by the practice, um, as you mentioned, I have found in our operation, um, I, I don't eat, I don't like to even use the word no-till by itself because I don't feel like it's a complete system. But with incorporating cover crops into the system, it does a number of things. And one of them, uh, is that it has allowed me to reduce the amount of herbicide that we apply because the the green living vegetation from the cover crop actually helps as a weed barrier. I haven't found here that I have been able to farm without herbicide. Uh, I feel that um, it's nearly impossible to grow all the food that we need to produce for the demands of the consumer um, to be able to farm without any kind of herbicide, whether it be considered organic. Um, obviously, that is is uh, is a topic that the consumers are um, you know excited about. But to be able to produce food without any kind of herbicide or any, I shouldn't say food, to provide to produce crops 
without any kind of herbicide um, is just not economically feasible uh, for me. But does that cancel out the environmental benefits of no-till farming then? No, I would not say it cancels it out. I actually think that with the use of no-till and cover crops, you are able to um, to protect the soil uh, and the water from any any contamination uh, or additional um, uh, things. Uh, that negative uh, uh, things that would occur to uh, the environment. I actually think it's um, it's better for the soil, better for the uh, better for the environment to be using the cover crops. But Lisa, isn't some of that uh, you know some of those chemicals washing off the soil and going into the waterways and into the bay? Um. There's always the risk for that, yes. Um, and again, it comes down to the decisions that these farmers are making f- to manage their entire system. So if you're managing for the soil, and like Steve said, working with nature instead of fighting against it, you're building this soil community that's full of microbes and living systems that um, can help break down those compounds when they are in the soil. Um, And then in addition to being able to break down those compounds, farmers that have been in this system for quite a while, they're seeing that their, their soils and their crops are just more naturally resilient. So you get these healthy functioning soils that creates healthy plants that have a higher natural ability to resist those insect pests and those diseases. So as this system really gets functioning, these pieces just fall into place and farmers can actually start reducing their need for insecticides and fungicides and ultimately the herbicides as well. So um, there's, there's gonna be this transition period to, to get from a conventional type system um, where those types of products um, and herbicides are still going to be necessary. But the longer you're into this system, the fewer and fewer needs there are to be applying those products on our agricultural fields. Let's take a phone call from Bruce. Uh, Bruce, you're on the air. Hi. Uh one comment I wanted to make was in defense of Lancaster County farmers, having talked with the Pennsylvania State Extension agent from Lancaster's office, that uh, while the farmers are highly regulated by federal and state governments, the uh, subdivisions, the recreation areas, the golf courses don't have the same kind of regulations, if any, and consequently, like we drive through the subdivisions with not a weed, perfectly green lawn, carpet looking, um, and it seems like the farmers take the brunt of uh, our accusations that they're polluting the Susquehanna and the Bay. Uh, I think one of your commentators already did respond to uh, my question about farm fields that don't have a weed when he was discussed herbicides. So with mm-hmm. that, I'll uh, end my call. 
Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Bruce. Uh, Lisa, I'll put that to you. Uh, is Bruce right? I mean, that uh, it's not just uh, agriculture, but when he's talking subdivisions, I, th- I think he's talking about the development and that kind of thing where people do have uh, perfect lawns. Um, I, I think that's a valid point, you know, that we all live in the watersheds of our local streams and rivers and ultimately the Chesapeake Bay. And each individual um, is making that choice as to what their fertilizer program is that they're they're following. Um, so we do recognize that um, there can be more education with um, homeowners and um, golf course and turf grass managers. And there is discussion about um, at least the large-scale turf grass parks and um, golf course and the, the companies that supply those residential services um, for lawn care um, to have that education program and develop more of a nutrient management plan for those acres similar to what a farmer is required to do mm. so um yes that's that's a potential source of nutrients in in the watershed um that to be concerned of but um depending on where you're at the scale of those acres compared to the scale of agricultural acres in certain watersheds um it's a much smaller percentage well i want to thank all three of you for being with us today and uh i know that uh, often when we've talked about uh clean water and uh, clean soil uh healthy soil and the chesapeake bay's health uh we hear about uh, the increase in no-till farming jim hershey president of the pennsylvania no-till alliance Lisa Blazier with uh, Strout Water Research Center and Steve Groff, a farmer in Lancaster County, also a director for the No-Till Alliance. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.